Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest this morning, we are honored to have you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. Uh, we want to encourage you to be a part of our Bible classes. They meet at 9.15 every Sunday, and we're going to begin this next Sunday a class that will uh, be uh, for visitors, for our guests, and it will be about a six-week class. It's not intended to be a permanent class, but it's one to help you find uh, your place here and to be assimilated into the work of the church here and into the Lord's body. And we hope that you'll come and be a part of that. I'll be teaching that, and it'll be in room 303, which is uh, back to this side of our building is an education wing, and up on one floor, the, the middle floor is actually the floor you're on, which is the second floor. The third floor, uh, just as you top the stairs there on the left, is room 303. We would love for you to come and be a part of that. Uh, we would be encouraged by you being there. And hopefully it would be a time that, that would help answer questions that individuals have when they oftentimes visit a church. And so we hope that you'll be a part of that. As already has been prayed this morning about our mission trip, uh, let's be mindful of our youth that they have begun teaching classes this morning and will continue tonight and each night through Wednesday evening. Uh, let's pray for spiritual success, uh, that God will be glorified in that there will be many seeds planted in the lives of the young and old this week that great good can be done for God's glory. It was a crime that's considered one of the most infamous crimes in America history. It happened on March the 13th, 1964. Catherine Genovese came home at 3 a.m. in the morning. Her home was apartment complex in Queens, New York. She parked at a Cross from her apartment complex in a parking lot. And as she exited her car, she noticed between her and her door, there was a man that was kind of hiding back in the darkness. As she took a few steps toward the apartment, he began to take steps towards her. She immediately began to turn and go the other direction. Seeing that he followed, she began running. She rounded the corner and was going down the other side of the block. You see, there was a bar that was usually open to 4 a.m. in the morning, and she assumed, probably, that she would find safety there. It had closed early that night, and there was no one there. But nevertheless, Winston Mosley, running after her, was much faster than her. He caught her before she was even halfway down the block. He began to stab her. Many, many times he stabbed her as this screaming took place. Finally, someone across the road turned on a light, opened the window and yelled out, Let her go! As if all the person wanted was some sleep. This startled him. Mosley ran back into the darkness. Unbelievably, she is able to get up and start making her way to her apartment. She rounds the corner and she's on the side of her apartment again and he comes back out of the darkness. Witnesses say they saw him come out and he began to stab her many more times. Finally, someone on that side of the building turned on a light. That startled him. So he stopped stabbing her long enough to run back into the darkness again. Fatally wounded, probably, but nevertheless, able to get up and walk. Unbelievably, she starts making her way back to her apartment. She probably either could not find her keys or simply was not able to operate the lock on the door. And so she went and started checking the door next door, and it was unlocked. She made her way into the vestibule of some apartments there and just fell into the open area there. Witnesses said they saw him come back out, and he started checking every door. 
made his way until he found the one that was unlocked. The witness just above, the floor above, heard him enter, heard him continue stabbing her over and over. And then, when there was no more noise of life, she was dead. He began to molest her. What I've just described to you took place over 32 minutes of time. It made the news, but it wasn't until investigators found out that there were 38 witnesses of this event. No one tried to stop Mosley. No one went down and offered any kind of help and support to her No one even picked up the phone to dial zero to call the police until after she was dead. This made the front page of the New York Times. This created an avalanche of media that shook America. Could it be that America had grown so cold and so callous that they would rather remain in their apartments and get some sleep as to help a woman who is being violently stabbed to death. One of the quotes of the man that was just above, he was plenty strong enough and young enough to have protected her. When they asked him, why didn't you help? His answer was what they'd heard among several of the witnesses. We just didn't want to get involved. Because of that, articles spread all across America asking, is that who we are? Are we people that just don't want to get involved in helping others? Plays were written. Musicals were produced. Books were written. One particular book was entitled 38 Witnesses. And even TV dramas were produced. You see, for four decades now, We've had to ask ourselves, as even a whole branch of psychology was developed as a result of this one case, we've had to ask ourselves, is that who we are as America? Is that what your community is like? Is that what your street is like? Is that what your family is like? Is that what you are like? But friends, the Lord has been asking that a lot more than four decades. The Lord has been asking that since He told the story of the Good Samaritan. Of an individual who was robbed and left half dead, lying there bleeding. The question that the Lord was asking, will anybody help this individual? And as we study this story, we see three main groups of individuals. And all of us will fall under the line of maybe in kind of some of these, and hopefully all of us will be the most like the last. But as we think of this, I'd like for you to think how the story began there, as the Scripture has already been capably read. Did you notice that the man was asking, how do I have eternal life? The greatest question that we could ever ask, the greatest teacher that could ever be asked of it, and that is Jesus Christ. How may I have eternal life? And Jesus' answer was, well, you've got the law, don't you? How do you read the law? Now that's interesting. How do you read? We're reading through the Bible this year as a church family. When we sit down and read each day, how do you read it? Do you read it so it can change your life? Or do you read it just because it's pages and it's a good habit and you want to be religious? 
Let's make sure that we all read the scriptures every day, searching for ways that it can change our life so that we can be more of what God wants us to be. And so this man, he was wise. Now notice, there's a lot of people that will say, well, the Old Testament was all about the outward law, but the New Testament is about love. Did you notice what this man's answer was? This man understood what the Old Testament was about also. It was about a loving God. Did you see there when he was asked, how do you read the law? He says, I see in the law the first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, and thy neighbor as thyself, implying love thy neighbor as thyself. And so Jesus encourages that answer, but the man wanted to justify himself. Note that point. He asked the question, who is my neighbor? Now notice he was doing that to justify himself. I need to be honest with myself. We're not studying this right now to talk about our neighbors. We're talking about ourselves. Me to me, you to you. Do I read the scriptures trying to justify myself? I love to be able to read it and say, yep, that's me. Well, I might have to twist it a little bit, but yeah, that's still me. You see, he did not ask Jesus, who's my neighbor, because he wanted to be more of what God wanted him to be. He asked Jesus that question because he hoped that Jesus would some way give an answer that he could stay just like he was and be fine with it. Do you notice that Jesus never answers that question? He doesn't. Read through it again. He never answers who is our neighbor. Instead, he turns that question And then at the end of the story, he says, now you tell me, who was the good neighbor? You see, the point is, it doesn't matter who our neighbors are. The question is, what kind of neighbor am I? Jesus says, you want to talk about who everybody else is and how you ought to treat them? It doesn't matter who everybody else is. All that matters, all that matters is who are you? Who are you when you walk down the street and see a man that's robbed and in need? Who are you? Who are you when you see a family member that's hurting? Who are you when you see a stranger that needs help? Who are you when you see a child that is an orphan? Who are you when you see a widow in need? That's what the Lord is asking in this story and in this parable and in this teaching. He's asking the man, all right, if you got the first and second greatest commandment down, now the question is, who are you? Now with that in mind, some people would answer that and say, I'm a thief. Did you notice there, as he begins telling the story, the first thing we read about in 30 is this man that was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves. You see, that road from Jerusalem to Jericho was well documented in history. Joshua even speaks of that road probably a couple of times. The name of that road means the pass of blood. It was a narrow, steep, rocky travel that had a lot of caves built into the landscape and a lot of hiding places. Josephus records even before uh, about the time period before Jesus tells this story and says that Herod had allowed 40,000 men to be let go of working on the temple. And as they, many of them were making their way back home through this way, many of them were robbed and left half dead. You see, this road had its reputation of being a very dangerous place to travel. Why? Why was it dangerous? Because there were a lot of people that believed this. What yours is mine, so I'll take it. Is that your attitude in life? What's yours is mine, so I'll take it. 
We're driven by greed. We're driven through a motive of stealing. If you would look in Genesis, I'm sorry, look in Exodus, the 20th chapter. In Exodus, the 20th chapter, we have, of course, the Ten Commandments. And as we scan down, we come to the eighth of the Ten Commandments in verse 15. Exodus, the 20th chapter. Turn there because we're going to look at a couple other things in in a few later chapters. But notice that one simple commandment. It's the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. You see, God's plan from the very beginning was that man would love and respect each other. When we take advantage of another person's possessions, we do not love them. We do not respect that person. We do not respect their possessions that they have. Look, if you will, to the 22nd chapter. A lot of times we think about the Ten Commandments and we think as if that was a law that stood all by itself. But along with the Ten Commandments came a lot of other civil and religious laws that later is called, in the 24th chapter, is called the Book of Covenants. And this is a part of the Book of Covenants. I'd like for you to scan with me there in the 22nd chapter a few things that deal with this idea of honesty. If a man steals, this is verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. You got that? He says, hey, if you steal a man's uh, ox and you go ahead and sell it or you slaughter it, then later you're called and you have to make restitution. You can't restore that same ox because it's already gone. You've already stole it or you already have slaughtered it. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to repay five oxen. You're going to go to work. You're going to buy five oxen, and when you can afford those five oxen, you're going to return them to him. If you steal a sheep, you're going to go out and you're going to work, and you're going to buy four sheep, and you're going to return them to them. Now, we read on in verse 5, it's not only just what we call just straight up stealing, it's also things like accidents or just carelessness. In verse 5, if a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds on another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If any of us have been on farms, you know how it's common for animals to get out. And, and it would be easy to say, well, they got out and they grazed a day. It was just a little bit of grazing. It's no big deal. And God says, whoa. It's another man's property. It is a big deal. Why? Because we love our neighbor as ourselves. When we don't respect other people's things, what we're saying is, I don't respect you. And so he says, if your cattle, your sheep are going to graze on another man's field, you go, you bring them back home, and you bring the other man's cattle, and you let them graze on the very best pasture you have. And if you take an advantage of his vineyards, you harvest the very best of your vineyard, and you return it. Even if it's an accident, like in verse 6, a fire breaks out and catches in the thorns, but then it works its way to the stacked grain, and finally to the standing grain. What do we do? Just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, it was an accident. I was just burning off a little piece of ground here. I didn't know it was going to get in a thicket there. Hey, I'm, I'm sorry about the loss of your field there. The Lord says, no. It's not that kind of sorry. It's genuine sorrow that says, I want to make rest- restitution for what I did against you. He even works down in, in verse 14 and following, even if we borrow things telling us how we should deal with them if they're broken or if the animal dies while we have borrowed it. Friends, it all goes back to our love for God and our second greatest commandment, whether or not we love our neighbor. If you would be turning with me to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. In Ephesians, the fourth chapter, we see 
a tremendous teaching that goes much further than just that of stealing. As you're turning there, let me ask you, how well do you deal with those things that we've just discussed in the Scriptures? How well do you do, deal with, with stealing? Uh, how well do you deal with controlling yourself to say, hey, what's yours is not mine and I'm not going to take advantage of you? How well do you do at returning what you've borrowed? For example, right now, if we went to your shelves, would there be library books from the church that maybe have been there for a long time? Or if we went to your garage, would there be folding chairs or tables that you've been meaning to get back since 2005? If we went through your house or through your garage, would, would there be a lot of things that just don't belong to you? Would there be things that just happen to come home from work? Because after all, it's a large company and what's a $2 pen when the company is worth millions? How do you view your responsibility of honesty? Is it honesty if it's a certain dollar amount? Or is it simply honesty because it's God's plan? I don't know if it's a true story or not. It's told as if it was. There were Boeing employees, and one particular guy wanted to go rafting with some of his buddies, so he lifted one of the 747 lifeboats. And he took it out to the place that they were going to raft, and they inflated it, and they were enjoying their time on the, the water there. And after a little while, a Coast Guard helicopter starts hovering over them. You see, those are supplied with a homing device for emergency situations, and so they had literally called in the Coast Guard when they had inflated it. And he doesn't work at Boeing anymore, but that does bring up this question. What if everything had a homing device? How many things in our life would we find in our hands that don't belong to us? That there would be a signal saying, you know, if... If you love and you respect the owner of this, you'd give it back to them. Some might say, well, it's just a bad habit I have. Perhaps it could become a bad habit. But as it doesn't start as a bad habit, it starts as not respecting other people enough to return what is theirs. To not steal from them, but simply to be honest. Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus, and it's interesting that the three years he was there, a lot of them would have been converted during that time. And so no doubt he probably remembers that some that he converted were thieves when he converted them. Now, they were going to learn Christ, Ephesians 4 and 20. And once they learned Christ, they were going to change their life. And look down to one of the ways they were going to change their life that he addresses in 28. Let him who stole steal no longer but rather let him labor, working with his hands, what is good, that he may have something to give him who has needs. What is he teaching here? He's taking the one point that says, look, stop stealing. And he's taking it two steps further. He's saying instead of stealing, what you need to do is go to work. If you'll work, instead of stealing what you want, you can work and provide that for yourself in an honest fashion. But then he says, once you've worked long enough to provide in the honest fashion, I want you to work a little bit longer. In other words, make sure you always work longer than what you spend. Now friends, that's a philosophy of Christianity. Because we always have to have something left over 
so that we have it to give to those who are in need. Look at the end of that verse. It's clearly taught there. We don't steal because that would be taking advantage of other people. Now notice the swing around. We work so that we can provide those things and we work longer so that instead of taking advantage of people, we can serve others who have a genuine need. Friends, if you're saying, I just don't have any money left over, find a little extra job you can pick up and say, I'm going to use everything from this job each week to give. Whatever you have to do, obey the Scriptures. God's way is best. Maybe you could say, you know, I can't work any extra time, but I'll just have to cut back what I'm spending. Because God's people, God's people are going to help those people in need. It's their life. It's who we are. We'll get to that as we look at the Good Samaritan in just a moment. But notice the second group of people. The second group is the priest and the Levite. You see, it was only by chance that they came along this man because they never would have been looking for someone to help. Isn't that a shame? You see, their idea was when they saw this man by chance, what's mine is mine. I'll just keep it. It's my time. It's my energy. It's my duty that I have lying out before me. I don't have time for someone like you. Remember one of the first things Jesus said about following him? If any man will come after me, let him deny self, take up his cross and follow me. The first thing we have to do is say it's no longer about me. Deny self, God and others. It's not about me. And so what do we do? We deny self in order to be a follower of the Lord. And when we deny self, it makes our eyes open to those that have need. Have you ever wondered why the priest and the Levite maybe just did not see the need to help this man? It's just like the case in 1964. How do individuals see someone dying and not do anything about it? This man is lying half dead. You would assume that if he lies there much longer, he's going to be dead. How do you just walk by? How do, quote, Good religious people just walk by. Maybe the priest said to himself, I'm, I'm on the way to fulfill a religious duty that I have. I, if, if I just had time, I, I would stop and help. But what I'm about right now is much more important. Maybe a Levite was saying, hey, our duty is to the temple. There, there's surely another tribe that has the responsibility of helping uh, victims of violent crimes. There's got to be somebody else that's going to come along and help. Maybe both of them were saying, I don't want to become unclean. If I start helping this man, I'm going to have to go through a ceremonial cleansing. I don't want to go through that. I don't want to become unclean. I think about my own toes that I'm standing on right now with this preaching this sermon. And I think about the number of times I have driven by someone and thought about helping them. But I've said to myself, if I wasn't in a suit, I'd stop and help them. I wonder if that's what went through the priest's mind. You know, if I wasn't in this nice religious garb, I'd stop and help this guy, but I I can't get blood on this. That'd be a shame. Oh, I'd help him, but I'm on my way to church. I have a religious duty to be there. I can't help somebody now. Isn't it interesting that if you went up to the thief, if they didn't think that you were authority, and you said to them, I think you take advantage of people. They'd probably say, yeah, so what? But if you went up to the priest and the Levite and said, 
I think you take advantage of people. I think you're selfish. Do you realize they'd probably defend themselves to the very end? Oh, I'm not selfish. No, no, no. You don't understand. If you just knew what was happening, you'd know why I walked by the other side. Remember what the man, he asked, who's my neighbor? Why? He's trying to justify himself. How often we do that? It's not who the person is that needs help. The question always comes back to who am I? Am I going to be the one that says, I'll offer the help? On these next couple of slides, I want to mention to you some passages that we ought to give some thought. This is just a few. By no means would this be everyone that Jesus says that we ought to help. But one group that Jesus says we ought to help is we ought to help our parents, and probably especially here is referring to aging parents. In Mark the seventh chapter, he talks to those individuals that would cry out whenever they would hear of a need that would take their time and take their money in their par- from their, uh, of their caring for their parents. They would cry out, it is Corbin. And here in Mark, Jesus says, you've made the word of God of none effect. In other words, you might as well start ripping pages out of the Bible because you've stopped living by the Bible. He would teach this same thing in Matthew, and in Matthew he would say, it's creating vain worship. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Can you imagine meeting Jesus as you exit the doors out there? Just imagine Jesus out there shaking hands and imagine Him telling individuals, thank you so much for worshiping today. Thank you so much for worshiping God today. And then He turns around and shakes your hand and says, it was really vanity for you to be here today. Do what, Jesus? Yeah, there was no reason at all. We didn't accept anything you offered to the Godhead in worship today. Why, Jesus? Because we know how you've treated your parents. And we don't accept worship from people that won't serve and give to their own parents. That's what he's teaching in Matthew. That's what he's teaching in Mark. He takes that a step further when Paul writes to Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 5, he writes a pretty lengthy paragraph talking to widows and families that are to care for widows. The care is to begin at home. That's where we first learn piety, and that is to repay. He's talking about physical payment. That is, it can be a repayment for all that they have done, whether it's financial or physical care. And then we learn from this that the church does have an obligation, but it's only secondary. The first obligation is to the physical family. Now, it's in this setting that he teaches that if anyone does not provide for his own. Now here he's talking especially to widows in our families. And he says, if one does not provide for their own, he's worse than an infidel. He's denied the faith and worse than an infidel. Can you imagine someone here this morning says, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. I believe it's all a hoax. Say, whoa, that's pretty bad. You know what's worse than that? Someone that says they believe in Jesus, but yet they have widows in their family that they're not caring for. Jesus says that's worse than an infidel. And when we look at the next slide, we get a glimpse again beyond widows as we talk about widows and orphan in James, the first chapter and verse 27. This pure religion and, and undefiled before God and the Father is this. Notice he says to visit them in their afflictions. And the word visit there would literally mean to go with open eyes. 
See what are the needs that are in their life and see the way that you can help. And then in Matthew, the 25th chapter, he gives the teaching there of a glimpse of the day of judgment. And there's going to be a group that did a lot of things for Jesus and they're going to hear well done, but they don't understand in this story here, when did we do these things for you, Lord? And remember, it was those that they said that, that the Lord gave them or they gave the Lord food when he was hungry, water when he was thirsty. And gave him clothing whenever he was naked. And took them in whenever he was a stranger. And went to visit him when he was sick. And visit him in prison when he was being incarcerated. And, and we look at all that and Jesus says, i tell you when you did it. When you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. I want to challenge you to do something. And I'm not talking about for, for boasting's sake. I'm not talking about to ever show it to anybody else unless you want to do it as a family, which might be really a great exercise. But I want to challenge you to make a list of these six or eight areas. Parents, widows in my family, widows in my church family, orphans, those that are hungry, those that are thirsty, There are people all around the world that need water, and we have great mission works that do that. Those that are strangers to you, but they still need someone to help them. Those that are sick, those that are in prison. If you created a checklist, how long would it take you to put a check beside each one of those to say, I just did that. I just did that. Friends, I suggest to you that the priest and the Levite, they never walked around with eyes open to say, who can I serve? You see, they believed what was theirs was theirs, and they chose to keep it. But we close this lesson by going back and looking at the good Samaritan. And what was his attitude? His attitude, what was God, what is mine is God's, and I'll give it. And so as we think about that, what is it that would move him to do that? When we go back to our text, there's something that stands out in verse 33. Notice it says, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. Notice it didn't say by chance. It says, and when he saw him. You see, this man was walking around with open eyes. Why? He had compassion. He had compassion. He had a heart that says, I'm open to see the needs of others. If you're hurting, I'm hurting. If you're rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. I feel what other people around me feel. And therefore, what was his was God's. And he was free to give it away. This man needs some bandages. I'll give some cloth to make bandages. This man needs oil and wine poured in his wounds. I'll give my oil and wine. This man needs a ride on my animal. Friends, sometimes we have we give somebody a dirty look if we have to slide down and give them the outside of a pew. What about if you give them your car keys and say, you drive home and I'll walk home? Friends, he gave up his ride. It's my animal. I'll give it to you. I will set you on my animal. Now I will walk as I lead my animal with you getting the ride. And when we get to the end, I need some sleep. But you know what? Tonight, I'll forego that good uninterrupted rest and I'll care for you. I will pay for the bill. And tomorrow, when I have to go about my duties, I'll pay the innkeeper to continue caring for you. Friends, that's not a second mile. That's the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh mile. Why did he do it? 
compassion. Why did the priest and the Levite not do it? They didn't have eyes to see. Because they truly believed what was theirs was theirs. And when I come to the reality that what is mine is God's, then I walk around looking for who I can give it to. Who can you give your time to? Who can you give your faith and your optimism to? Who can you give some money to? Who can you give your service to? If we open our eyes, can you imagine what this number of people going through our community, serving others and giving God all the glory can accomplish? I'd like to close by reading to you two passages. If you'll glance at 1 Peter, the third chapter, I'd like for you to notice where all of this kind of compassion starts. In 1 Peter, the third chapter, in verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you be of one mind. That's where it starts. Having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Notice when he says, have one mind, that's the mind of Christ. When you and I think like Jesus, we'll have a heart that is full of compassion that wants to reach out and help others. What does that heart do? It loves brothers, but notice it's tenderhearted. It hurts. When, when we say, I'm ready to become compassionate like Jesus, we're ready to say, I'm ready to have some bad days because some people I'm serving are going to have bad days, and when they hurt, I'm going to hurt. And right in with this, he ties in courteous, kind. Are we ready to do that? You remember what was said of Jesus in Acts the 20th chapter and verse 35? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Do you remember when Paul said that? He said it when he talked about laboring with his own hands. But notice what he says about laboring with his own hands. That you must support the weak. Notice it's not an option. You must support the weak. And when we do that, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Thank God we serve a compassionate God. I'd like to close and extend the invitation with Psalm 78. Psalm 78, thank God we have a compassionate God. Thank God that that we have a God that knows that when we were in the depths of sin, we didn't deserve it. Why would He ever send Jesus? Why? The children of Israel continually turned their back on God. The psalmist writes and describes God in this way. This is 38th verse of Psalm 78. But he, talking about God, being full of compassion, forgave your iniquity. He feels our pain. He felt it enough to send Jesus to die for us. He's done everything he can do to bring us back. And now the choice is ours. Do we want to be helped? Do we want to be served by God? Do we want to be forgiven? If so, first and second greatest commandment, love God with all of our being. Second, love our neighbor as ourselves. Have you loved God with all your being? Are you a believer that's willing to repent of sins and turn to God, willing to confess before others, Jesus is the Son of God, not being ashamed of Him, willing to be baptized into Christ for the remission of the sins, coming up to live a life committed to God and committed to others, giving our way into involvement. Why was the Good Samaritan so involved in this man's life? He was a giver. Givers 
are always involved in people's lives. If you've become a Christian and since you've been separated from God, you want to repent of sin and come back to Him and pray forgiveness, let's make sure that we leave here this week knowing who we are. And knowing that who we are is not us trying to justify ourselves to ourselves, but knowing that God would be pleased who we are. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand as we sing.